Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where we are going to be looking at a, a text that I thought would be appropriate from this morning. We're going to take a little break from 1 Timothy and, and look at a passage which really has some powerful truth for us, as you will see. One of the most valuable ancient Greek manuscripts is called the Codex Sinaiticus. It was uh, written in the early 4th century A.D., and it was uh, a complete uh, copy of the New Testament in Greek. It was found by a man, a German scholar named Constantine Tischendorf, who was... Uh, who was traveling around the world trying to find ancient manuscripts, just looking for more ancient sources of the Bible so that um, um, they could be gathered and to just help us with the accuracy of the text that we use today. And the story of how Codex Sinaiticus uh, was discovered is pretty interesting. Tischendorf had journeyed to Mount Sinai where there was this obscure uh, monastery. If you go to Israel, there's monasteries just way out in the desert. And, I mean, canyons built on the face of cliffs and things where people retreat. And and he was visiting these monasteries just looking for manuscripts. And and while he was there, um, he noticed that inside a a waste paper basket uh, were all all these ancient manuscripts that the monks had been using to start their fires. And um, being a lover of the ancient manuscripts, he was pretty distraught. And he tried to use his best poker face to see if you could have some of their trash and um, their fire starter rubbish. And uh, they could tell he was excited and very interested. And then they were kind of hesitant, you know, um, you know, it's trash until somebody else wants it and then you want it back. So that's kind of what happened. But he did come away with 43 pages of an ancient manuscript, parts of the Bible, that these Greek monks had been using to start their fires. And uh, who knows how many fires they had started with these manuscripts, but he, he saved 43 pages. Later on, he came back um, after several trips to see if he could um, get any more. And after much schmoozing and diplomacy and tact, he was able to procure... Codex Sinaiticus, a complete ancient manuscript of the Bible, which is now housed in the British Museum. If you think about it, though, those manuscripts, those ancient manuscripts had a purpose, didn't they? I'm sure the guys who uh, wrote on those parchments or animal skins uh, did not think that anybody would ever dare use them to start fires. Uh, they were, were written out by hand painstakingly uh, with uh, precision and exactness so that the Bible could be passed down from generation to generation so people could read the Word of God so they could grow so the gospel could be preached and people would be saved, not to start fires. That was never their intended purpose. Well, in the same way, God has a purpose for all of us. He has a purpose that we were created for, to live upright, to live in holiness, to live in righteousness before Him, to be His people and have Him be our God. But men, being sinners, have used their minds, have used their bodies, 
have used every means possible to indulge their flesh, to rebel against their, their creator. And all of us, like sheep, have gone astray, and each of us has turned to his own way, and we have all corrupted the very purpose of why we are created. Now, it is a shame that those monks were using those ancient manuscripts to start their fires. But think of how much more terrible it would be for the people of the British Museum today, knowing the value of that manuscript, Codex Sinaiticus, to begin to rip pages out of it and start fires in their own homes. That would be a greater tragedy. And that is kind of like what our text is talking about today. The Christians at Corinth seem to have problems about every vice and doctrinal issue you can think of. They had problems with personality cults. You know, I am of Paul and I am of Apollos. They had problems with incest, with marriage, with believers suing each other and sexual immorality and idol worship. They had problems with giving and problems with the resurrection and problems with loving each other and problems with spiritual gifts. And the list goes on and on. Um, someone said the book should be titled uh, uh, First Californians instead of Corinthians. And Christians were being pulled into just all sorts of wickedness. They lived in a very pagan culture where there was a big temple of Aphrodite and all of these Greek um, um, religions which basically uh, used uh, self-indulgence as, as a form of worship. And so uh, people were being pulled into that. The church was being attacked by Satan, by false teachers. And so Paul had to write to fix many things. And in the context of the passage that we're going to look at this morning in chapter 6, it, before it become two sins that Paul addresses, they were tolerating this man who was committing incest in the church, and they were failing to remove this wicked person from their midst. Secondly, the believers were suing one another. And uh, Paul says, what are you doing that for? I mean, can't you judge between yourselves? I mean, don't you think that believers have more of an ability to judge with righteousness than those who are of their father, the devil? Right after our text, he talks about immorality and not using our bodies for immorality, that we have been bought with a price and we are no longer our own. And right in the middle of this comes our passage. And in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, Paul explains that as believers, we are saved to live for God, not the flesh, not Satan, not sin. Christ died to save people from the fires, just like those... Ancient manuscripts were saved from the fires. And he says, now that you've been saved, don't throw yourself back in with that lot. So if you have your Bible, please follow along. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. We'll stop there, read verse 11 in a minute. Verse 9 starts off, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now that's pretty clear. Paul makes it crystal clear. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And this is nothing new. Turn over to Galatians. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. As he's speaking about the Spirit-filled walk, he says this in verse 19, 
of Galatians 5. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarned you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Turn over to Ephesians 5, starting in verse 3. Paul says this, But immorality, or any impurity or greed, must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Paul did not hesitate to share the sobering truth that if you are living in constant rebellion against God, you are not going to get to heaven. And don't deceive yourself into thinking you are, because you aren't. Galatians 5 and Ephesians 5, and twice in our text, he says, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. In Ephesians 5, 6, he says, This you know with certainty that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, he asks a rhetorical question with an implied yes answer. Do you not know? And the implied answer is, of course you know they don't get into the kingdom of heaven. In Ephesians 5, 6, he strengthens the truth further by saying, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, he repeats, Do not be deceived. Now, why is that? Well, Matthew Henry wrote, quote, Men are very much inclined to flatter themselves, that God is such a one as themselves, and that they may live in sin and yet die in Christ, may lead a life of the devil's children and yet go to heaven with the children of God. But this is all a gross cheat. Note, it is very much the concern of mankind that they do not cheat themselves in the matters of their soul. We cannot hope to sow of the flesh and yet reap everlasting life. End quote. You cannot live a fleshly life and think that you're going to reap eternal life. You can't go sow carrots and get corn. It just doesn't work that way. Now what is different in our text in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 through 11, is that Paul just doesn't say the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God and then stop there like he does in Galatians and Ephesians. He goes on to say something else, something very encouraging, and that's what we want to focus on this morning. Paul tells us how all believers are a bunch of has-beens in Christ. And you should leave here today understanding three life-changing things that happen to every person who places their faith in Jesus Christ and also leave knowing the three people who make it happen. Look at verse 11 as I read down and notice how verse 11 flows from these sins that Paul mentions in verses 9 and following. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. 
neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, and this is just so great, I love this part. Such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. In verse 11, we learn that all believers are has-beens in Christ. I mean, I also think, oh, that person's a has-been. We're all has-beens. And it's a great thing because we're has-beens from sin. We're has-beens from Satan. We're has-beens from being slaves to those things that would destroy us. And after listing a large assortment of sins, many of which are just general categories of a multitude of other sins, he says, such were some of you. That is, that is so choice. The Greek is hard to translate here, but the phrase might be paraphrased, all these sins were you. Is what he's saying. Before becoming to Christ, they lived in sin. They were slaves to sin. Those sins owned them. And they followed after the prince of the power of the air. One of the great texts that describes this, as Paul in Ephesians 2, the very beginning of the chapter, as he's explaining before he talks about those great verses on God's mercy and love and grace which save us, he describes the position of all believers, or all unbelievers, before they become believers. Every single person fits into this category. And this is what he says, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Now think about that. You were walking dead people. You were zombies. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and you formerly walked according to Satan himself. Satan just pulled you around by his leash. You, you, his leash, you had his banner. You were marching in his ranks, and you didn't even know it. And just so they don't feel like Paul singling them out as some extra group of bad people, he says this, Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh and in the lust of our minds. And we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Paul too, the Jews too, everybody Everybody indulging in the desires of the flesh and the mind were by nature children of wrath. And maybe, maybe some of us have heard of people who have been addicted to things. <laughs> and maybe we can think, oh yeah, I knew of somebody like that. Well, I'll tell you. You know somebody like that really well because every time you look in the mirror, you see them. Here Paul is saying all of us are that way. He is not saying all of us engage in every sin to every degree. But all of us are slaves to sin. All of us walk according to the prince of the power of the air. All of us indulge the desires of the flesh and the mind and are by nature children of wrath. Even as the rest, just in case there's another category. All of us are that way. 
The words such were are words which testify to the very power of God to save people from those sins that enslave us. And not only did they save them from the consequences of sin, but also delivered them from sin's power so that they were no longer following the sins which they once followed. You've probably seen those uh, dog chains out in the park and people take a little corkscrew thing and they, they screw it into the grass of the park and put the chain on it and hook the dog on there so the dog doesn't run away, the little pooch. It's one of those dogs that if you open your front, front door, they run away and never come back, so you've got to chain them. And, and those dogs can run anywhere they want. They, they travel around freely, but only where the chain will reach. Outside the chain's reach, they can't touch. They can do anything they want. They can't get beyond the bounds of their chains. Well, before a person comes to Christ, that's how we are. We're chained to sin. We're chained to Satan. We're chained to rebellion against God. Nothing we do is pleasing to God. Nothing. We are totally sinful. Unable to please God in any way. And as hard as we try, we can't get outside the circle of sin. Until. Until we place our faith in Jesus Christ. Until we give our lives to Christ until we receive Jesus as our personal Savior and our Lord and we repent, turn from our sins and turn towards God and pursue the things of God. And God, by His grace, saves us. And when He does that, He breaks the chain. He severs the chain. And now, like never before, we can get outside the circle of sin to where obedience is. But... Being free means also being free to sin. And sometimes we crawl back into the circle because we got used to it there. We're sinners. But at least we have a choice to obey God now. Turn to Romans chapter 6. Nowhere else in the Bible does it describe our freedom from sin any clearer than in Romans 6. Look at verse 5. And notice what Paul writes. For if we have been united with him, speaking of Christ, in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Look at verse 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves of obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. This is what it means to be a Christian. To be a slave of righteousness. You become obedient from faith to righteousness. The internal heart change God causes within you begins to make you love the things of God. Being a new creature, you start thinking, I kind of like the Bible. I mean, it hurts when I read it. And it's convicting when I read it. But I like it. And I want to read some more. And even though it hurts, you want to read some more. 
You, you hunger and thirst for righteousness. You want to obey God. And even though you fail, you, you want to obey. You just It makes you more and more dependent on God. And pretty soon you realize that old things are just disappearing. Your life is changing. And you have become a has-been in Christ. You cease to be a champion of sin. And this is what this first little phrase tells us, and such were some of you. But then it goes on. And it goes on to tell us how we became has-beens. Notice what it says, but the first thing, you were washed. What's interesting is before each of the verbs here, washed, sanctified, and justified, Paul puts a very strong contrasting word. There's there's several of them in the Greek, but this one here is one of the strongest ones. It's not just but. It's but. There is a strong contrast. You are this but. You have changed. You are different. You are no longer what you were. And he put it in front of each of the verbs, not just usually the normal pattern is to just put it once and then list everything. Here he puts it in front of each one to make absolutely certain, but you were washed, but You were sanctified, but you were justified. You no longer are slaves of sin. You were slaves of sin, but now you are not. And the phrase you were washed would more literally be translated, you had yourselves washed. But how did they have themselves washed? Did they take a bath? Did they go in the river? No. Hebrews 9.22, speaking of blood sacrifices, says this, And according to the law, one may almost say that all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Hebrews 9.22 makes it crystal clear, you are only washed and cleansed by blood. Now that is kind of strange, isn't it? I mean, when you think about it, I mean, most of us haven't taken any baths in blood, at least I hope not. But what is he talking about there? Cleansed with blood. Well, if you go back to the Old Testament, and you go back to the book of Leviticus, and you go back and see the Day of Atonement in chapter 16, and then in chapter 17, uh, as he describes that, and he talks about um, not drinking blood, this is the reason that he gives in Leviticus 17.11. Just listen to what it says. And as I read it, you will see why blood cleanses. He says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. God says, you sin? You want to be right before me? There's got to be blood, and not just any blood, blood of an unblemished animal. The problem is, is those animals, the blood of those animals only covered sin. It didn't, it didn't make perfect, as the author of Hebrews says, those who drew near. It, all it did is covered and waited for another time. You see, if you're going to give a sacrifice, you not only have to have a perfect sacrifice, but you have to have a perfect sacrifice of the same kind. You can't take a, um, you know, a calf and redeem a person, or a bull and redeem a person, or a lamb and redeem a person. If you're going to redeem a person, you've got to have a, a person. And not just any person, but a perfect person. And if you know anything about people, those are hard to find. 
They're really hard to find. As a matter of fact, there has been only one. And that was Jesus Christ. Jesus, the scriptures say, were tempted in all things as we were, yet without sin. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, says this, Knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You remember what John the Baptist said when he was down there baptizing people and beating up on the Pharisees who came to watch him. As soon as he saw Jesus, what did he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was that one perfect man who would give himself voluntarily, willingly, out of love to be a substitute for those who deserved God's wrath. He would suffer God's wrath for us. He would take our punishment upon Himself and die our death on the cross that so through faith in Him we might receive His righteousness. He would take our sin and there would be the great exchange so we could have eternal life. In 1 John 1, 7 it says, But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sins. This is the first reason Paul gives for being has-beens in Christ. Such were some of you, but you had yourself washed in the blood of the Lamb. Reminds me of that old hymn. There's power, power, wonder-working power. You know that one, I'm sure. The second, the second um, thing we see in the text, look there. The second reason we are has-beens, it says you were sanctified. Sanctified and sanctification is kind of a big word, and all it means is set apart from sin, or to be made holy, or to be made righteous. That's what sanctification is. When you became a believer, God set you apart. First you were in the wastebasket, you were heading to start the fires of hell, and now He takes you from the wastebasket and He sets you apart for holiness and eternal life. And it would be foolish, Paul says, having been saved from the basket, to jump back in there. Wouldn't it? Why would you do that, is what he's asking. Don't do that. You were, you, were, you were sanctified. You were set apart for obedience. You know, I have a lot of tools at my house, and I love my tools. But every once in a while, I'll be out there working. Um, I'll be doing something. And uh, I'll have a lot of tools with me. Sometimes I have my belt on, you know, and gadgets and pencils and, you know, stuff. And I'll be out there working in the yard and maybe up on a ladder or maybe far away or something. And all of a sudden, I need to pound a couple nails and I look around and I realize my hammer is not there. It's, it's in the garage. It's, you know, on the workbench. But here I am up on the ladder and I don't want to get down. It's hot and I don't want to climb all the way in there, get the ladder, come all the way out just for two lousy nails. So I look around and there's some pliers. I think I'll just pound it in with the pliers. And so then I start trying to do that. But you, I first quickly realized, which I knew to begin with, that pliers were not designed for pounding nails. 
They do not pound nails well at all. And usually you have to get down after ruining your pliers and chipping them up and chipping up the chrome finish that now I go get the hammer, put the nails in because the hammer was designed for nails, the pliers for grabbing things and pinching things and pulling things. And see, God has created us for a purpose and he has set us apart for a purpose and that purpose is to obey him, not rebel against him. In Hebrews 10.14, speaking of Jesus' sacrifice, says this, For by one offering He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. If you are a believer, that is you. You have been perfected and sanctified for all time in Christ. That is such a great truth. I love that. The third truth is that you are justified. The third thing that makes you a has-been in Christ is justification. And justification is a legal term. It is a term that describes God declaring you to be righteous. Because all of your sins, when you place your faith in Christ, were put upon Jesus, and His, His death on the cross erases the debt that consisted of decrees against you, as Colossians says, God then can declare you righteous. And you are righteous from then on because of what Jesus did. Turn to Romans chapter 3. I just want to look at a few verses on justification so we can kind of get a a handle of how great this is. Look at verse 20 of Romans 3. Paul, after talking about us being under the law, he says, Because by the works of the law... No flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Look at verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 28. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 9 of chapter 5. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Turn over to Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Just from these verses alone, and there are many others... We learn that justification is nothing you can do. It's something God does for you. We learn that justification is a gift, something given to you. We learn that justification is by grace, undeserved favor from God. We learn that justification is received by faith in Jesus Christ. We learn that justification causes us to have peace with God. We learn that justification is made possible by the blood of Christ. We learn that justification saves us from the wrath of God. We learn that predestination is what leads us to being justified. 
And we learned that anyone who is called and predestined and justified will also be glorified. And these three truths, the washing by the blood of Christ, the sanctification and justification which are had through faith in Christ. And if you, what's interesting is you look in the scriptures, you will find these all over the place. These are what make us has-beens in Christ. They free us from our old life and make us into new creatures. And Paul's argument is simply this, since you were made has-beens in Christ, having been washed and sanctified and justified, why would you ever live in sin like those destined to perish in hell? Why would you, after being washed, jump back into the sewer? Why would you do that? Why would you, after being set apart unto God for righteousness, set yourself apart from God to sinfulness? And why, after being declared righteous before God, having Christ's perfect righteousness given to you, would you then work and labor to be unrighteous before Him again? Paul says it's ridiculous. There is no reason for this. And this is why God wants you to know that... Salvation is not a continuation of a sinful lifestyle, but is a radical transformation through faith in Jesus Christ. Yet a believer who sins, they'll be forgiven. It's not that we don't sin anymore. We don't practice sin, but we sin. I mean, here we all are. We could all raise our hands to find out who has never sinned since becoming a believer, and I'm sure not one hand would be raised. John even says, if anyone says they have no sin, they're a liar, and the truth is not in them. No, we're sinners. And we will always sin, and we fall into sins. Even big sins we fall into. But the pattern of our life will not be rebellion against God anymore. We will slowly be progressing in righteousness as we apply God's word to our life and the Holy Spirit begins to change us and we fellowship with the saints. We become more and more like Jesus. And so we see these patterns of sin slowly disappearing from our life. Now notice the text again and let's look at the three people who make this happen in our life. The end of verse 11, after he says, Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. Then he gives the people here, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Here we have mentioned all the Trinity. We have Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We have the Holy Spirit and we have God. The Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit sent by God. The phrase, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, describes everything Jesus is and everything He did. Same with the name of the Spirit. Same with God. God the Father is the one who sent the Son, and the Son sent the Holy Spirit, and they planned before the foundation of the world to save lost sinners from the consequences of their sin, that they would be washed and sanctified and justified. Listen to what Warren Wiersbe says, summing up this text. Quote, Certainly people who are truly born again will go to heaven in spite of their many failings. But the new birth brings a new nature, and a new nature means a new appetite. The Christian still has the ability to sin, but not the desire. Any teaching that makes it easy to sin is not biblical doctrine. Be not deceived. 
Paul list, listed the awful sins that once had ruled their lives, then reminded them of what Jesus had done for them, as such were some of you, but you were washed, sanctified, justified. The Christian is the new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17, and proves it by breaking with the old life. We do not inherit the kingdom of God by refraining from sin, but we prove that we are going to heaven by the godly lives we live, end quote. I don't know your hearts, only God does. And I don't know what's going on inside of you, but I know this. I know people can come to church and pretend to be Christians. I know they can come for a long time, be involved in ministries, read their Bibles and go to Bible study, and then many years later, come to salvation. I also know many people who are very involved in church, who seem to be Christians, depart from the faith, go apostate and never return, showing they were never believers to begin with. Many people come to church... But inside, they don't come to God. They have a very thin veneer, a facade of Christianity on the outside. And they can't get over their sins, and the reason is they don't want to get over their sins. They don't want to leave their sins. They love their sins. As John says, men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds are evil, and so they don't come to the light. And they may come to church, but they don't come to Christ. They want a Savior, but they don't want a Lord. They want to be saved from hell, but they don't want to submit to the Lord of heaven and earth. They don't want to have somebody really in control. They just want somebody to save them so they can have it their way. Jesus, you can save me. I'll take care of my life. Those kind of people aren't saved, Paul says. He says, don't be deceived into thinking they are, because they aren't. No, if you want to escape the fires of hell, if you want to be snatched from the wastebasket by God, there is only one way, and that's Christ. And not just naming Him and assenting to the facts that He existed, because the demons believe Jesus exists. The demons know that He died on the cross and was buried and rose again on the third day. But the Scriptures say they tremble. It's not merely acknowledging the facts of who Jesus is and what He did, but a commitment to the very person of Jesus to follow Him. John 1.12 says, But as many received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. In John 3.16 it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Romans 10, 8 through 11 says, For the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, not rebellion. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. Just tucked in the middle of Corinthians. A text which is found amongst a lot of problems. 
We thank you that you make has beens when it comes to sin. Father, we acknowledge that all of us, before coming to you, were slaves of sin and Satan. Oh, it may not have been drugs or alcohol or whatever, but it was something. Often many things, dark things within us that we didn't want to give up because we loved them. And Father, we thank you for your grace which reaches into our life. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit which illumines us to your truth. We thank you for granting us repentance so that we might believe and be saved. Father, you are a great God. And Father, if there is anyone here who doesn't know you, someone here who maybe has never repented of their sins and really received Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, Father, I pray that you would save them now, that in their heart they would cry out to you, in their heart they would say, Lord, I, I want to turn everything over to you. Father, they would confess their sins, confess they need a Savior, and Father, be willing to submit to you as Lord of their life. And Father, we thank you for Teen Challenge, we thank you for the ministry of Teen Challenge, we thank you for the work that they're doing in the lives of so many. We pray that you would bless the ministry, Father, that you would provide for their needs. We pray for those in the program right now and those who will be next week and the week after and the week after that and the year after that and on and on, Father, that you would show your grace to be more than abundant, that, Father, you would reach down and save people from their own selves. And, Father, that in all of this you might receive all the glory and the honor and the praise. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.